Hello and welcome to The Book Album, your place for everything related to reading and language. I'm your host, Mackenzie Gentz. Now, bookmark that book and let's begin. Hello, hello, and welcome to our spooktastic programming for the month of October. That's right, Horrifying Classics 2021. This year's theme, Contemporary Horror, aims to introduce notable horror novels from the last few years, especially debut novels, which may one day become horrifying classics. Our novel for today is Come With Me by Ronald Malfi. I would be remiss not to mention at the outset that this novel is certainly the most classically scary, no pun intended, that we have read thus far in the series. You've been warned, this book is not for the faint of heart. We did not finish Horrifying Classics by Halloween this year, as we have in past years, as we plan to this year, but that is just how the cards fell. Fear not, we will finish the series within the next two weeks as we publish this episode very early on in November, and then the final episode in the Horrifying Classics series on The Doll Master by Joyce Carol Oates in about a week. And after that, for our 200th episode, we are going to sit down together and I am going to teach you all how to make me tea while I spill the tea, so to speak, Patreon style. And after then, we will go back to reviewing literature, a la the podcast classic. <coughs> Plot summary. Aaron and Allison Decker are the main characters of this novel, or at least the main characters at the outset of this novel. It starts off in a really interesting place where the narrator, Aaron Decker, is talking to us, the readers, in this sort of elevated prose about his wife. And he's he's speaking directly to his wife, Allison. So he's saying on the first page here, quote, every marriage has its secrets. I understand this, Allison. I get it. Secrets are what allow us to cling to our individual selves while also being one half of a matrimonial whole and can be as vital as breathing." Unquote. So we have this kind of direct soliloquy almost to Allison, but we also get the sense that there's sort of, he knows that there's an audience, even if that audience is just in his head. So he's narrating this whole time, and we're very much in his head about this, and we're getting his responses and his reactions throughout the whole book. That's nothing new when we look at a first-person narrative perspective. There's lots of eyes in here, for example, in the narration. After this high prose about marriage, this direct address to his wife, who we find out is dead, we go back in time a little bit to when the wife was still alive, and we get this picture of her last morning where she wakes up before him, she decides to go into the mall, and there's this, you know, very homely, kind of cute scene where she kisses his forehead and she's about to leave and she turns around and she says, come with me. And that's the last thing that she ever says 
to him. And that's obviously the title of this book, a very profound line, something that repeats over and over throughout the novel as a motif that's so beautiful and so haunting as well. And then he gets up out of bed and watches her get into her Subaru and go off to the mall where there is a mass shooting and she is one of the victims. After his wife's death, he goes, Aaron, the main character, goes into this just state of absolute numbness. And he, in the midst of this, finishes translating a Japanese novel. We get the sense that it's a big Japanese novel, but we get a little bit more insight into who he is because he is a translator of Japanese novels into English. And he starts to split apart. So there's this other Aaron, this Aaron who speaks Japanese and who operates in Japanese and who operates very logically, who can, who can get things done while real Aaron or the Aaron that's more emotional is grieving and he is numb to the point of not being able to do anything. So that part of the book with numbing very early on where he's grieving the loss of his wife and he sees signs of her everywhere, right? They're clothes still in her closet, etc, etc. And there's this splitting that happens. So it serves not only to inform us about him and about how he grieves, what kind of a person he is, but also how he's going to cope with this loss throughout the novel as we continue. And I would make the argument that this grief is central to the entire book as a whole. And we'll get into why that might be near the end of the episode. So Aaron, in the midst of this grief, starts to look around. It was near Christmas when Allison dies, so he was looking in their closet, realizes that the chest that Allison would hide her Christmas presents in is locked, and he finds way to open the chest, he looks in it, and there's a gun. And not only is there a gun, but there is a thick file folder full of girls who have died, and copious notes about these girls. And on top of that, there's a sheet that says, gas head will make you dead, over and over and over. And there's these six angry rectangles in this pattern, this kind of design on the page as well. So there's this alarming sense that he's found something that in this chest that A was kept secret from him and B is completely incongruent with the notion or image of his wife that he had. And he says this openly and frequently in the beginning part of the novel that he and his wife had a great marriage. They were very close, they were very intimate with each other, and yet there's this crushing weight of this secret that she was carrying from the time even before she knew him, and she never revealed this to him, despite their great marriage. So there's this, there's this dysfunction almost, this dissonance with the fact that they could have had a great marriage and she could have kept a secret of this magnitude from him. Because outwardly she was very against guns and did not want to keep one in the home in an instance where they thought about it together at one time. 
And she also, she had violent tendencies and, and these tendencies and these clues about her, the persona that was hiding underneath her reality in some senses, we get clues about that throughout the novel as Aaron remembers certain instances from their life together. But at the outset, we don't get a sense that there's this amazingly violent persona behind this woman. She's meticulous and she's investigative and she's bold, but she doesn't seem like she's an evil person. So there's this dichotomy of finding these clues but and not knowing you know the context for them obviously but also trying to reconcile what they seem to denote what the signs seem to say with the actual person behind them and what he knows about her as her husband as the closest person to her in her life on further investigation, Aaron realizes that the files are actually detailed records of murders of these young girls who he finds out through conversation with a journalist who's related to Allison. Essentially, through finding out how to piece this thing together, he realizes that these girls all look strikingly similar. They have the same facial features, the same sort of build, the same look. The only things that are odd about the case is that the murders are spread out by time quite a bit. So the first murder occurred way before they even met and the second one, you know, and so on. And the most recent one was the previous year or maybe recently. So the time scale is very odd, as well as the location. If there was a serial killer, which is what the files from Allison and Allison's notes seem to suggest, then the serial killer is very mobile and then begs the question of how he, how he even found the girls in the first place, considering not only their time distance from each other, but also their physical distance from each other. So there's a lot of pieces here. There's a huge chance that, for example, Allison could just be wrong and could be making a serious mistake and posing serious implications without enough evidence. Because after all, she's not a homicide detective. She's a journalist herself at a small town newspaper. So Aaron is thrust into this investigation, essentially, that his wife was conducting behind his back, and he ends up starting to pursue the case. And he ends up going to the last town that Allison visited with regard to the most recent murder, and or the last place where she visited, rather, which was a an inn in the middle of nowhere in the south, so he takes her car, the Subaru, which he calls the Sub, and he starts essentially investigating these murders and sort of makes a decision to go full bore into this and finish what his wife started, and a lot of this touches on his mental and emotional delicacy at this time as well, just because he's grieving his wife's death so deeply and so thoroughly 
So he also does this, he starts at least, as a move of desperation, of trying to keep hold of her somehow and trying to piece together who she was through all of this, especially considering all of this new stuff that he just didn't know about her. Or knew about her, but not explicitly. So Aaron starts to travel to the towns where the murders took place. He gets in touch with police chiefs and detectives and starts to talk through the possibility that there was a serial killer. He finds similarities along the way with how the girls were killed, other than, of course, their plain looks, for example. But there's just too many similarities. He finds out the murderer, for example, has this beaten up old mud-colored car with a lot of exhaust coming out of it all the time and this big police light on one of the front sides of the car. So there's a lot of small clues. It's a slow rolling thriller in some respects because we don't really find out a ton about the case. It's a lot of this psychological tension and this perhaps paranormal tension that Melfi I think really expertly builds throughout and so it's not so much the pure evidence of it uh, that really drives the plot here but it's really the emotional and the purely metaphysical narration from Aaron that we get that really takes us through. About three-fourths of the way through the novel Aaron makes his way to Allison's hometown, and this hometown, it was an old mining town, and she she essentially lied to him. There's things that he realizes throughout their marriage she lied about. One is that she has no family, that her mother and sister are both dead. Her sister is dead, this is true, but she died a different way than she said. Allison said that her sister drowned. This sister was actually also killed by the serial killer. She was his first victim, which gives her a motive for starting to research this guy and all of these cases and how these murders are connected, etc. And her mother, though, is not dead, and there are still people in her hometown who, who know her, or knew her at least. And so he goes to the hometown, and she, she described it to him so vividly, and that description definitely carries through for his actual visit. It's very muggy, the rain is kind of sludgy still, there's just this fog in the air. He ends up visiting the old mine shaft area at the top of this hill, and he figures out what the gas head will make you dead phrase that he sees on the paper that he finds means, and he finds out what that symbol is, the six different rectangles. So there's a lot that he figures out that I'm not going to spoil actually because I think that's so important to this <laughs> novel and the reading experience of it. But there's this phrase throughout, and I touched on it just now, gas head will make you dead. It has a ring to it like, if ye be not willing, the lords will rise, which is the phrase from Tide Pool by Nicole Wilson, one of our earlier reads. But I would argue that gas head will make you dead, that recurring phrase in the novel is better executed in this case because 
that phrase is a perpetual mystery throughout the novel. And it's perpetually reframed as well. Everyone Aaron meets, who he gets far enough in conversation with, he asks about that phrase. And over and over again, people say, I don't know what that means, I don't know what that means, I don't know what the relevance would be. And so, Tidepool, that phrase, the lords will rise, was spooky. It's, you know, it's very connected thematically to the text and to what's going on with the historicism and the Lovecraftian genre, but it was self-evident through the narration what was going on the whole time. There was this kind of undercurrent of um, supernatural almost uh, with the lords in the ocean and, and all of the fish people and everything. And in this case, there's this constant tension, there's this constant development with it, and it's constantly a question. And there's, you know, theories that we can have about this gas had phrase throughout the novel, right? When we figure out that the murderer has this car exhaust, maybe that's, you know, tied into it somehow. So there's constant hedging and trying to figure out what this thing means, not only in Aaron's narration itself, but also for me as a reader, trying to figure out what was going on with the gas had phrase the whole time and trying to solve the mystery before it was solved for me, so to speak. So there was always that tension there. I think that was so effectively done and done in a distinctly different way than we've seen most recently with Tidepool and the Lords Will Rise phrase. So we find out through these visits with the hometown, through really the whole investigation in general, that Allison is a more violent person than Aaron thought she was certainly, than really anyone would guess her to be. And she ended up assaulting her mother's ex-boyfriend, who was an alcoholic like her mother, and she essentially almost beat him to death with a crowbar, which is very extreme, right? For this like docile, like small woman who, you know, has had this kind of tragic past and who we have the feeling who's escaped some terrible situations. So considering, again, the dissonance between the person who she presented herself to be and the person who she was, big difference. She also planned to kill the murderer herself. So when she was going down, the first place that Aaron goes is to this motel where she stayed. Um, during a recent trip and he finds like the work receipt or something from her office when her colleagues bring all the stuff from her office to him and it's this like provincial you know lodge kind of place that she had stayed at for a couple days and uh yeah she had gone there because Spoiler alert, the murderer ends up being the innkeeper there and she had gone there to kill him herself except he never shows when she's there so she never gets the chance. Um, except Aaron does, Aaron gets the chance at the very end of the book. What I, I love this ending and I hope I get to talk about it a bit more <laughs> and I love this ending so much because we end up right where we started basically on this like giant road trip throughout the east eastern part of the United States 
And it ended up being such that the murderer was the first person that Aaron visits from the beginning of this chase. And it's just like an amazing culmination. And there's so much, so there's so much there. And there's so many pieces that Malfi has to tie together in this way that ends up being so effortless. And so there's this like weird like automobile and Aaron thinks that the mud-colored automobile is going to be his clue that that's the killer, but it turns out that's been in storage. Um, and so they end up, you know, finding the automobile eventually and connecting it to the murderer. But Aaron ends up getting in a conflict with the murderer and he shoots him. And when the murderer dies, this stream of gas comes out of the murderer's body, which again, like, ties into those elements of horror that really aren't in our like main genres so it kind of it goes into the like almost paranormal kind of horror and Aaron at the end of the novel gets also he gets shot and dies um the wife of the murderer who Aaron kills comes back and for vengeance basically and he answers the door and she shoots him. And so there's there's just so much nuance to this plot. I can't do justice to it in even in a 40-minute episode. And again, what I love about it is that there are so many small pieces of the plot. So I gave you just a big general overview just now. There are just so many little pieces, and I'm going to give you an example of those little pieces that matter so much to this plot and really, really propel the plot forward in an amazing, compelling way. So when Aaron is recounting all of these scenes from when he's married to Allison and Allison is still alive, one of the scenes is when they go to a party together and there's this woman who is just so drunk and you know very boisterous etc she gets on the table that they've been eating on and she starts telling fortunes and telling futures and so you know Aaron goes up and he's been selected to have his future read and she looks into her little ball her crystal ball nonsense and she looks up and she's troubled and she sees a woman in a red beret telling him to not open the door and Allison you know of course this is completely in the future they have no idea that this what is going to happen and that this is going to happen Allison says oh I own a red beret and she's killed in that same red beret and so that red beret throughout the story is forever associated with her and at the end of the novel someone knocks at the door and Aaron unwittingly opens it to reveal the person who murders him. And then there's kind of like a spiritual ending of the book. So that's just one small detail that, you know, they're kind of hard to miss sometimes, or hard to remember rather sometimes. Um, in a book of this size, especially if you take a while to read it as I did, but they're so compelling. So I would, I would, challenge you to be really focused as you're reading this because it just makes the reading experiment experience so much more worthwhile and so much more 
enjoyable at the end when all these little plot elements start to come together. So the murder case is solved and there's a journalist who Aaron runs into a bunch along the way who's writing up essentially the brilliance of Allison's clues and all of her work and Aaron's contributions as well to that and his kind of finishing Allison's work. And then Aaron ends up also dying in this like very tragic, surprising way. I, I didn't see that, I will be completely honest. I thought that Aaron was going to settle down again, start translating another Japanese novel, and no, he ends up also dead at the end of this. Genre. One of the aspects that I love about this novel is the intermingling of genres that it has. I would classify Come With Me as a part murder thriller, part psychological thriller under the horror genre, or rather the horror subgenre of speculative fiction, of fiction, but there are undeniable paranormal components and mystery components of the book as well that serve as more than just undertones. I can also see different readers reading the book differently. For some, the book might be more of a paranormal thriller than the others that I chose, especially with some of the aspects that I'll mention in a minute with regard to the paranormal. For me, the reason why I stuck this book in the part murder thriller, part psychological thriller subgenres is that I felt that the most central elements of the novel had to do with Aaron's psychological status as well as the status of the mass murder case. Ultimately, these are the elements that not only drive the plot forward but dictate the rest of the book. In terms of the paranormal elements that there are, there's a lot. There's a lot of Allison in this book. Allison is a creepy young woman. She has a very dark past, as I mentioned. She has been known to have bouts of violence. Erin remembers a date where she, there's someone, a man abusing his girlfriend, and she ends up hitting him really, really hard and kind of assaulting him in the middle of the street. There's countless examples in the novel of just little insinuations that Allison is more violent than she purports to be or maybe than Erin wants to see her as. On page 200, there's some more paranormal elements of essentially reminders of Allison. And Erin, of course, is grieving, so a lot of this could be purely psychological, but the line is blurry, and that's what makes this interesting as a, an example of genre. On page 200, quote, I awoke in darkness, blanketed in sweat, though not complete darkness. At some point, as I thrashed within the straitjacket confines of my nightmares, our closet light had come on, blink, like an epiphany. The doorway glowed with a soft yellow light, laying down a strip of illumination along the carpet from one end of our bedroom to the other. I sat up in bed, my back against the headboard. I couldn't take my eyes from the lighted closet. You might walk out and into the bedroom at any second, Allison. My heart was galloping. The closet light blazed. I got out of bed and stood there, naked, my body chilled by the sheet of sweat that coated it. My throat had tightened, but I managed to call out your name nonetheless. 
held my breath, waited for you to waltz out and greet me, ached for it. Oh, please, oh, please. In that moment inside myself, I agreed to take you in any form, in any ghostly condition that you might wish to appear to me. It didn't matter. My grief was so palpable in that moment that my entire body began to tremble and I thought it possible that I might just break apart and crumble to the carpet in broken shards of crockery, a powdery heap that had once been a person, which only you and your spectral majesty might reshape into something even more exquisite and true. But you never came out of that closet. Of course not. Instead, I went inside, wincing at the overbright ceiling fixture, sizzling and popping like an Alka-Seltzer commercial. The intensity of the light was so great, I thought it might burst, but it didn't. It remained on, the heat coming off of it in impossible waves." Unquote. So you can kind of see, even within this short passage of you know two-thirds of a page, the progression that goes through. So there's kind of this element of like, the closet light should not be coming on by itself really. Like it, it could have been Aaron, right? If it's motion sensored and it sensed him from the bed. But it's like, okay, the closet light shouldn't be on. There's this kind of odd instance that could be explained by the paranormal. And yet there's this overwhelming emotion that Aaron has, overwhelming psychological pain that he's experiencing and this like confusion and mess. And he's like working through it and he's, He's hoping, honestly, for the paranormal to be true, even though he knows that, rationally, that's not the case. Other instances in the novel include Alexa playing just music randomly throughout the house. Her music, by the way. Um, there's a point at which he's trying to find a clue about the killer and ends up looking through one of Allison's yearbooks from high school. And the songs that play, the titles that of the songs that play through the Alexa speakers guide him to where to look in the yearbook. So a lot of it is paranormal in my opinion, or at least in my reading of it. Um, and some of it could of course be explained by just purely psychological factors that maybe the music is actually playing randomly and it's just helping him work through the process of trying to solve this mystery. But it could literally just be, you know, a sign from a ghost kind of situation. In terms of the murder thriller aspects of the book, definitely it just revolves so much around these gruesome murders and about investigating the murders. There's definitely the like mystery whodunit kind of genre intermingled in all of that, especially considering all the suspects that are involved. So really anyone is a suspect here because Aaron has no investigative expertise, he's a translator of Japanese novels, you know, so everyone, including the detective who helps him out at one point, and the police chief, and uh, other people on the scene, other journalists, other sleazy dudes who have nothing to do with the case, and yet are just sleazy, <laughs> and so Aaron pegs them as potential murderers. So there's definitely a lot, if you tagged along in our Poe series in February, you definitely can recognize some of those pieces in there. Just the way that this progresses is very much similar to the whodunit slash murder slash mystery subgenres here. 
And definitely the way that the ending culminates with just like a big overview of everything that we missed slash sort of saw along the way, that's definitely indicative of this genre categorization. And then briefly, of course, the psychological thriller aspects. I think those are the most prominent of any in this novel, just because the entire time we're in Aaron's head literally with the narrative. So there's no separating this question of psychological thriller within the novel. Going back to our original definition from our first Horrifying Classics episode this year, horror as a subgenre is defined as having an overarching sense of dread. I would argue that in this novel, there is that sense of dread, especially with the themes of death and loss that are so prevalent throughout the novel. But more important is the sense of hysteria that keeps compounding along with Aaron's psychological inability to cope with Allison's death, as well as his unsuitability to being the primary detective on the case of a serial killer. I'm going to read a passage from page 147 that exemplifies the building hysteria. 147, quote, For the first time, I realized she possessed some of the same qualities as the killer's other victims. Blonde, slim, pretty, with petite features that were almost too youthful. If she were a few years younger, she could have fit neatly among all those black and white newspaper photos shuffling speedily through my brain, a whole history of dead girls. Be careful, I told her, and have a good night. Watch your six, she said, and blew me a kiss. I hurried across the street to where the soup sat beneath the sickly glow of neon lights radiating off of the diner's rooftop sign. I climbed into the car, tossing my satchel onto the passenger seat, and started the engine. Manic Monday came on the CD player. I lowered the volume and sat there, the car in park, while I watched Denise Lucanthan smoke a cigarette in the parking lot of the mineshaft all by herself. She looked like someone's victim. Unquote. Okay, aside from that passage being just so beautifully written, I think so much of this book is so attentively beautifully written, and the prose just really lends itself to that dramaticism, that building hysteria, the kind of psychological nature of the whole book. Aside from all that, there is this sense that Aaron is having trouble coping with the situation, and I think this passage exemplifies that so well with him having this encounter with Denise, who he's interviewing as a potential victim in the case, someone who can provide him more information about the murderer. And he realizes that she too could easily be a victim. And I think there's that lingering sense also that he is sort of the victim of this whole circumstance as well, and could be a victim furthermore as he continues. Pacing. So the pacing in this novel was different than in the other novels we've read for horrifying classics thus far. It's been generally quite slow in throughout the whole novel, and it's slow such that the big news within scenes and sequences happens quite fast. So there's this like overarching sense of a slow pacing yet the individual scenes can go quite quickly, especially when they prove informative to the plot and to the development of this murder slash mystery. So again, even remembering the first page, 
and kind of this psychological positioning of us in Aaron's head and then Aaron in the situation and telling this whole story, that's quite a slow pacing compared to a lot of the other books that we read. Even Fake Like Me, for example, had more of a quick pacing. It was slow at times, but intentionally so. And I think this book was intentionally slow in a similar way, but throughout a majority of the novel rather than just in key parts. And I think the slow pacing, again, it's not something, it's not bad to say that the pacing was slower and it didn't actually hinder me from reading this book quite quickly. It really matches the complexity of the emotions that Aaron feels throughout the text. And there's this layering effect that takes the entire novel to really build to this climactic moment at the end and to build this complex emotional layering in its entirety. And I think that's really effective in this slow pacing. And it relates to the hysteria that we were talking about, right? As the hysteria builds, the emotional complexity, not only the feelings of guilt that we get in the beginning, but also the feelings of confusion that develop around Allison and around her untimely death, but also her life and what she, the secrets she kept from Aaron, for example, and then there's these feelings of perhaps self-doubt as Aaron comes across moments and moments and moments where he's not sure of his path or what he's doing or who really who he is at certain points. The splitting occurs as I talked about in the beginning. So there's a lot of complexity here and I think that's something that I really enjoyed and latched onto as a reader and that really the complexity was allowed to breed in a sense because of the slow pacing because Malfi wasn't trying to feed us so much information at once it really really built in this intentional way and there's this undertone of fear the whole time that i think really distracts at least it distracted me as a reader from the slow pacing because there's just this undertone of like something is not right here and Aaron is trying to figure it out, but the way he's doing so is step by step by step, and that's, you know, slow, and that, even I think the pacing being slow itself is frustrating and unnerving, and that adds to the reading experience, and I think that's part of what makes this book so scary. <laughs> I mean, I was terrified. I had nightmares while I was reading this, and it didn't help that I read it at night, but... <laughs> It was really, again, it was just really scary and the pacing was so magnificently done and that made it just all the more scary, all the more real. <laughs> what I loved? Scares. Alright, I'm giving this novel a 4.5 out of 5 scares. This novel scared me to nightmares. It was so scary. And it was just, it was so existential as well. There's just so much death, especially when your first person narrator dies on you. Come on, that's insanely scary, at least to me. Um, and just the this novel's so grounded in reality and it's so rational. It's like, it's so real. Like the characters aren't making horror movie decisions. They're making decisions that you or I would make and that makes it all the more scarier. I will admit that at first this novel reminded me a lot of Gone Girl because he says, you know, Allison so much. It's like an open letter to Allison in some ways. 
And that detracted for me, and that's why this novel did not achieve the 5 out of 5 scares. Honestly, I'm not sure there is a novel that will achieve that, we'll see. Um, so I think just the, like, the dialogue with Allison wasn't as effective in places. I think that it kind of took us out of the mood of the text, especially considering just how beautiful, unspeakably beautiful the writing is in this book. I think the constant reminders of Allison were a little bit cumbersome at points. The pacing and development, as I just mentioned, is slower in this novel than in the other horrifying classics novels, but again, the payoff for me was worth it as a reader. It was very creepy and the ending made a big impact. This novel is contemporary, but it's not trashy. It doesn't have that like YA tone to it where there's constant references to cultural norms and cultural icons. No, none of that. It has the Sub in it, the Subaru. <laughs> it has, you know, cultural commentary, certainly, with the mall shooting that Allison dies in, for example, with, you know, the suburban house that they live in. That characterization there is really interesting. But again, it's not like they're talking about memes all the time or something like that. I really liked how immediate the book was and again, how grounded in reality it was because it was recognizable to me as someone living in this same time period without being, again, kitschy or obviating its own time period too much. I also love the way that Ronald Malfi writes. I think it's so, again, intentional, just beautiful, kind of meticulous prose. There's a description on 249 that I want to read, and there's just so many of these little hidden gems throughout the book. Just the way that Malfi describes things, especially through metaphor, is amazing to me. So for example, on 249, quote, DeCampo's eyes looked like two black buttons someone had pressed into the pale, weather-worn fabric of his face, unquote. Like, what a brutal description! Wow! And this is, you know, of course, a creepy guy. The buttons, you know, remind me of, like, Coraline or something, that movie just you know just creepy there's one description from earlier in the book that was something along the lines i tried to look for it it's in the first half of the book it's something along the lines of like the the sky was like a bleeding artery or something like that it's just like one of those like amazing abilities to describe things in a nouveau fashion or style just so interesting and so evocative for me as a reader, just trying to get myself into the way that Ronald Malfi through Aaron sees the world. And last but not least, the ending. Oh man, I actually had to remember the ending. I finished this book about a week ago. I try to sit on the books for a while before I record the podcasts. And I completely removed the, mem the ending from my memory, the ending where Aaron dies and there's this sort of spiritual journey that he goes on. It was just so scary to me. And it was very Billy Summers, actually, one of the books that we read on Patreon in October, where 
in Billy Summers, spoiler alert, the ending is this woman, uh, he kills this woman's son earlier in the novel and she pops out of nowhere and shoots him in the gut and he dies of, you know, toxicity issues later on. So it's, it's very like revenge, like Billy Summers kind of ending. They're very similar endings and you know, both took me as by surprise. I thought Billy was gonna, you know, ride off into the sunset with Alice, and turns out, you know, he dies too, and so does Aaron. So the ending just so masterfully done, the culmination is so well done, and the pacing has a lot to do with that. But overall, 4.5 out of 5 scares, an excellent read. I'm keeping this book, I'm gonna read it again uh, one day. I think it's a really interesting valuable read and I look forward to reading other novels, other short stories, if there are some, by Ronald Malfi, the author of Come With Me. If you enjoyed the episode and would like to hear more from us, we've done everything from Shakespeare to Dracula. There really is a show and a series for everyone, so I'd recommend checking out our website at relevanceofliterature.com under the ongoing series tab for links to our entire back catalog of episodes, as well as any current goings-on of our show. If you are looking for even more content, we also have a Patreon page at patreon.com slash relevanceofliterature. Thank you so much for your support, and we'll see you next time.